Imperial Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show Encounter, Adventure, Evangelize And now your host, Brooke Taylor Well hello there, welcome to the show Today's program is brought to you by our sponsor Select International Tours Serving pilgrims with excellence for over 35 years It is because of their commitment to excellence, quality, reliability and safety That even in the midst of a pandemic They are going strong today In fact on my landing page you will see on their website A new article entitled When is it safe to travel? again that has the very latest information in addition to the details about my upcoming trips with Father John Michael Paul the Vicar of the Americas for the community of St. John. You can find out more at selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS that stands for Brooke Taylor Show that's selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. So I'm really looking forward to having you be a part of this sit down I had with Dr. Peter Kreeft. He has a new book out, which I have read cover to cover and profusely highlighted. I really think you are going to be impacted by this in a powerful way. And I don't say this that often, but if you are, please share the show. This episode and the content of what he talks about is so important. The name of the book is How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the cultural abyss. So let's jump in here now, my conversation with Dr. Peter Kreeft. Delighted and honored now to welcome our guest today. He is one of the most respected and prolific authors of our time, professor of philosophy at Boston College. He has written 80 books, maybe even a few more than that, on philosophy, theology, spirituality, truly a living luminary. I'm talking about Dr. Peter Kreeft. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kreeft. Well, thank you. I don't know who you're talking about. I guess it's me, but uh, <laughs> I am an absent-minded philosophy professor, and uh, I teach at Boston College. Uh, I am an intellectual prostitute. I sell my uh, brains for money. Nobody buy my body. Uh, and Boston College is my pimp. Well, your brain is brilliant, and, and we're grateful for it. And and I want to talk about your new your new book because it really is a great specimen, uh, an example. It's How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the Cultural Abyss. And it may sound a little doomsday-ish, but I have to say you interjected some really wonderful humor and hope in the book, which you always do. Yeah, one of my favorite quotations is from uh, a, a Cavalier poet. It goes like this. Man, serve thy maker and be merry, and for this world give not a cherry. Oh, that's fantastic. And it's short and easy to remember, <laughs> yes. but it's which some of the best things are. So I, I enjoy that. Well, I want to take a tour. Fortunately, our home is, uh, our eternal home is not the United States of America. It's heaven. Yes. And the United States of America is not even the church. God did not uh, promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And all nations have had cycles and, and they've all died. What we see paralleled in the church as well as in our culture and the world right now is very interesting. There's just a lot of similarities going on in terms of some of the erosion, the corruption, which I know is not new, but that reminder that that heaven is our final destination. And if anything, it, it purifies our intentions here and now. Yeah, it gives us principles for cleaning up our temporary hotel. That's right. And so that kind of takes me right into the first page here of your book. You give us the answer to what ails us now. And you write, I'm just going to quote the first lines in this first chapter, the single most necessary thing we can possibly do to save our civilization, the single most necessary thing citizens can ever do to save their civilization at all times and all places in all cultures is to have children. And 
you know, when I think about superheroes, I think of the great Greek myths and legends. I think of Superman. But as it turns out, the heroes are really mom and dad, you're saying. Yeah, that's the most important job in the world for two reasons. Uh, physically, biologically, if we don't have citizens, we don't have a society. Uh, you can't build a brick house unless there are bricks. We're having fewer and fewer children. And more deeply, spiritually, uh, we don't believe in childhood anymore. We say things like, I don't want to bring too many children into this world, which is ridiculous because it's the most comfortable world we've ever had. It's spiritually dead, but it's technologically alive. And people who say that don't usually complain about its spirituality, but it's, uh, it's everything else. So if even in this wonderfully comfortable world of ours, it's not good enough for us and, and, and we don't have that love of life anymore, that's, that's our doom. We, well, we get what we want. You, you, you set up the reality of this culture of death that we are leave, living in. And I recently I hosted a retreat, the Arise Retreat, and I was speaking to our retreat master, Father Joseph Tuscan. He spent several years in New Guinea as a missionary there. And he remarked that when he explained to them abortion and what that means, they were absolutely horrified. And this is a people who had practiced cannibalism. Doesn't that say something? I've got a story for you. A uh, doctor friend of mine in Canada has a friend who's a dietitian, and he worked for the UN and they sent him to Zaire because there was a tribe there that was one of the last isolated tribes that were afraid to come out into the country. They were dying because they had a bad diet. So he said, uh, you have to give me time to win their confidence. And that took a year or so and he had to share their bad diet and so on. Finally, he, he won their confidence and he, he saved their lives. And now he was a great white father. So they believed everything he said. And one of the things he was talking about was abortion. And they did not believe it. They literally did not believe it. They thought it was a joke. They laughed politely. Uh, and he couldn't make them to the, to the last day that he was there. He couldn't make them believe that it wasn't a joke. They were waiting for the punchline. One wonders who the primitives are. But that is the reaction that we should have. And you say that in the book, our ancestors would not believe it if we told them. So, and in, in that really is the thread, kind of the foundation that ties through. Later on in the book, you talk about that the longest lasting cultures in the world have all been family friendly from Confucian, Islamic, Jewish, Roman, and, and that reminder that we need to not just reclaim the family, but the quality and the virtue and the beauty of the family, I think, as well. Yeah, the great thing about the family is it's, it's the most effective teacher of the most important moral lesson, unselfishness, love of other people, the common good expressions over, over egotism. You can't have a family without practicing that. In chapter it's two. one of God's greatest inventions. Yes. And you build on what happened with God's greatest invention and how did the beauty of that get removed and corrupted. And in chapter two, you walk us through 40 foundational, fundamental facts of common sense, philosophical, systematic. Really, we could spend the majority of the interview here, but I want to cherry pick a few. And to that point, I think it's number six. Again, it's the topic of the family. You say the most obvious and radical symptom of our sudden decline and the cause of the many other symptoms, especially the decline of stable families, is the sexual revolution. So maybe explain that. How has the sexual revolution eclipsed our religious liberty and infiltrated every part of our culture and society? I think our sexual behavior has always been problematic, but our sexual wisdom has suddenly ceased to be. Suppose there were some other practice not connected with sex that 
uh, had the same effects as uh, divorce, which is, of course, a sexual issue. Namely, you, you welched on your most serious promise you made in your life to the person you said was the most important person in your life. You harmed your children more than anything. Uh, abundant sociological statistics show that children are more traumatized by divorce than by death. And thirdly, you made it impossible for your society to survive because family is the building bricks of any surviving society. Uh, if it didn't have anything to do with sex, that would be absolutely not tolerated, but this is tolerated. Suppose you went to a country where 50% of the citizens committed suicide. Would you say that's a, a healthy country? Of course not. But the fundamental citizens of each country are families, and 50% of our families commit suicide. That's what divorce is. So we are seriously sick. We are. It just seems like our culture isn't really interested in the source of the healing and fixing it. And, and you kind of get to the root of that. You add, it's not their behavior that we threaten. So we're talking about all sorts of different sexual immorality. It's their conscience. They want us to approve their behavior, at least implicitly, by paying for it. So example, abortifacients or paying for abortions through a government mandate or program. We are the last people in our culture who say no, who judge, who dare to play the prophets. Prophets are always unpopular. They threaten the fun. Boy, is that the truth. I mean, we really want to be liked, don't we? Our image of Jesus is is he's basically Ned Slanders on The Simpsons, the, the archetypal nice guy who doesn't ever make trouble and smiles all the time. And that's why, of course, they uh, they hated him so much that they nailed him to a cross. That's what you do with the nice guys. Now, Jesus was supreme love, but he was all supreme truth. And he really ticked people off. And if we don't ever do that, we're not very close to him. If we're not getting some splinters in us from his cross, we're not close enough to his cross. We just haven't really experienced martyrdom, and that makes us soft, and it's not our fault. I think we've been very blessed, but to recognize that that's part of the deal. Well, look at the world today. The most peaceful and prosperous part of the world is what used to be called Christendom, Western civilization, Europe and North America. And that's where people are exiting the church fastest. In Europe, 10 people leave the church every year for everyone that enters. Uh, look at the rest of the world, though. Look at China, where the faith is persecuted. Look at Islamic countries, where to become a Christian is to risk your life. Uh, look at Africa, the poorest country in the world, full of corruption. And, and, and The faith is growing like leaps and bounds there. Martyrs are happening. Miracles are happening. It's like the early church all over again. So when, when one part of the roller coaster goes down, God brings another part of the roller coaster up. Thanks be to God. And it only takes a, a few hardy souls to really, I mean, you look at St. Paul and what a great example to, to really, you know, spark a revival. And you in the book, something that stuck out to me, and you've taken some heat for your, your compliments of the Muslims in terms of their devoutness, their piety. The Jews and the Muslims, they don't mess around when they come to their feet. They got spines. They got yes. spines. We're jellyfish. Yes. We're all compassionate, all soft skin with no spine. Yes. And so going back to the family, sexual revolution, the culture of death, part of all of that is to reclaim virtue and, and truth, which ultimately is Jesus Christ. But I had recently uh, talked to Brie Dale, she's a journalist living in Rome, and we talked about objectivity and journalistic integrity and fake news. And one of the things that struck me is we talked about there used to be a unified understanding of basic truth, biology, for example, the way things work that was discussed by great scholars and philosophers over centuries. But now 
it seems like we can't even agree on what is knowable, even the most rudimentary bricks of truth. And you predict in your book, you said, when the sexual wisdom of St. John Paul II's theology of the body becomes better known and widely accepted, there will also be a restoration of Aristotelian logic, a respect for natural law. Because I think what we're seeing is, I, I, I say this with deep respect, I know that it, it may not come off as, as charitable, but I feel like we have lost our minds and people are they want to be identified as unicorns or all sorts of things that just aren't rooted in reality and so i really appreciate that key point that we have to go back to the foundation of what is true john paul ii was a brilliant philosopher and one of his oft-repeated points is that we've gotten the relation between truth and freedom different than, than Jesus did. Jesus says the truth will make you free. We think our freedom is so great that we can create our own truth. And most graduation speakers tell that lie. You can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. You can't be St. Michael the Archangel. You can't turn yourself into an animal. And if you're a man, you can't turn yourself into a woman. You have serious problems, and we need to be compassionate about that and, and, and treat it, but not by, by, by surgery that, uh, that creates a pretense. What you are is what you are. There is objective truth. You can't be whatever you want to be. When, when you talk about John Paul II, he obviously was a man who had been tried in the fire and, and what a great saint for a century and, and a time, I think, forevermore that we need and, and look to. But also in your book, you talk about Lewis and Tolkien. These also were men, lest we forget, that suffered terrible trauma, being in World War I, the Battle of the Somme, losing their friends, suffering probably PTSD and things that we will never know, yet they go on to not only live full lives, but contribute to the world in ways that is incalculable to a degree. So where, where do you think the disconnect is? I guess, does it go back to us being jellyfish and kind of being softened by the things that have come to purify us? Well, there's an obvious psychological lesson to be learned here. Let's take four people. Let's take Lewis, Tolkien, John Paul II, and Mother Teresa. Uh, all of them smile a lot. They joke a lot. They're happy. Why? because they don't expect this world to be a utopia. They suffer, they expect to suffer, and, and yet they're cheerful. Now contrast the typical American. He expects perfection, he expects comfort, he expects security, he expects control, he expects freedom, he expects autonomy. Uh, I'm gonna be the god of my little castle here. And it never works, so he's unhappy. If you accept God's divine providence, if you accept that there is a God who is all loving and all wise and all powerful, uh, then necessarily you believe that uh, God is going to bring good out of evil and is going to bring joy out of suffering in your life. So, so you have a reason to go through it. If you don't believe that, then you demand to play God. You, you don't trust his way of doing things because it doesn't seem to be right. So you say, well, get, all, get out of my seat, God. Uh, I'm, I'm taking over here. I don't, I don't think, they, I don't think the, the, the heart of of our problem is sex. I think it's pride. I think it's autonomy. Now, that autonomy is expressed in the sexual area. We, we want to be our own sexual boss. We don't want to accept our own bodies. But that's that's the oldest sin in the world. That's the devil's sin, playing God. Not, not having the humble faith to say, God, I'll do it your way, not my way. 
just thinking about the characteristics of, of those three extraordinary saints you mentioned. Basically, we have to be all in, and you say that Christianity is either everything or nothing, either the world's stupidest lie or the world's ultimate truth. That if Jesus Christ is not everything to you, he's nothing at all. And now- Well, he, claim, he claims to be everything. He claims to be God, and he either is or he isn't. And if he is, you worship him. You don't just tolerate him. And if he isn't, you crucify him. If anybody ever deserved to be crucified as an idiotic, wicked blasphemer, it's, it's, a, it's a man who claimed to be God and said, let me take care of your soul. I alone can save you. I alone can forgive your sins. That's, that's indeed blasphemous if it's not true. I'm thinking about your example of Ned Flanders. I mean, Lord, help us. And you think that is such a great poverty that we have done what we have done to our Lord. And I guess that leads me into heroes because you talk about all or nothing. A hero has an absolute. And that is, as you say, he has an all or nothing passion. But we don't do absolutes anymore. I'm quoting from the book here because they make us uncomfortable. Now, there is a wow moment that stung me and I loved it because it's so true and I related to it. It says, we fear absolutism more than we fear damnation because we confuse it with fundamentalism. And we prefer, you, you say this later, but you say we prefer hot tubs to battlefields. What a line. That's pretty fantastic. It's true. I love Pope Francis's uh, description of life today. The church, he says, is a field hospital in the middle of a battle. He's not a great intellectual and he has a little slip sometimes, but he's got a genuine heart and compassion for those people that he sees are suffering. It, it takes an idiot not to see that we're living in a suffering and dying world and that people are desperately unhappy. One of the funniest experiences I had, it's serious and funny at the same time, about a year ago, I discovered that there's an agency called the Global Happiness Project. I think it's sponsored by the United Nations. And they evaluate the uh, two or 300 nations in the world by the level of the happiness in their people. And they give some sort of prize for the five happiest and some sort of warning against travelers to the five unhappiest countries in the world. I was a little skeptical when I first read about that, how do you calculate happiness, but I read on, and they, they last year came up with the conclusion that the five happiest countries in the world are Finland, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and Denmark. And the five unhappiest countries in the world are all in sub-Saharan Africa. And when I read that, I thought, this is a great joke. This is, this is hilariously funny, because everybody knows, even little one-year-old children who can't even speak knows that the surest indication of happiness is a smile. You smile when you're happy. Who smiles the most? Africans. Yeah. They're always smiling. Who smiles the least? Scandinavians. And then I thought, well, the other indication, the clearest indication of unhappiness, the most unarguable and spectacular indication of unhappiness is suicide. Where is the suicide rate the lowest? Where is it the highest? Scandinavia. And it wasn't a joke. Peter, these, people are so, these people are so obsessed with, with, with power and money and control that happiness equals the number of dollars in your bank account, even though you think life is so uh, unhappy that you put a bullet through. It's true. I remember, uh, I think it was last year, talking to Dr. Aaron Cariotti, and I had uh, spent a little bit of time, a weekend or something, helping in Haiti. And this was after all of the devastation there, and they're experiencing a lot of unrest now as well, but they have one of the lowest 
rates of suicide. I had a chance to meet this woman up in the mountains and I was with Food for the Poor. We had built her a home and she danced and she sang in a way that I will never forget. She danced and she sang the song that was translated to us from French Creole. And it talks about our Lord and how she gets activated every time she says the name of Jesus. And then I went home to my home parish that following weekend where we had heat and full bellies and people were barely even lip syncing, you know? And so I know that's true. And these, this was a woman who slept on the dirt until that recent home was built and had experienced extraordinary loss and devastation. So I guess it's just recalibrating our vision because we are so earthbound and, you know, feeling offended when something doesn't go our way. I know Pope Francis talks about that also, the expectations that we have. And really, it goes back to what you said. It's the pride that we're not saints. And you have a great quote in the book about we are not Saint Teresa of Calcutta because we don't want to be. And why don't we want to be? We're afraid. We're afraid of opening our hands and our hearts and giving up the little toys that we have so that God can give us things that are mountains compared to these toys. It, it, it comes down to a lack of faith, a lack of trust. The Psalms are full of, of songs, singing, people sing. Uh, we're, we're commanded to rejoice. Go to the average Catholic parish. How many, how many people sing? Why don't Catholics sing? Don't they have voices? They don't sing because they're not happy. They're, they're happier in Haiti than they are in America, even, even though they're desperately poor. And, and that doesn't mean that we should try to, to seek out things to be misogynistic, but I think redemptive suffering and looking at the little way, the, the beauty that comes from a life lived deeply. We should at times hear the voice of God and be scared and be shaking in our boots, but the God of the covenant is faithful. And our own life is a test to that in, in adapting our daughter from Poland. And I think there's a poverty when we do fear to step out. And, and this is what you talk about with heroes and, and Frodo and, and the courage to endure. I think enduring is, is a big part of that also, to have fortitude and perseverance. Even if our son, we prayed for a few years and he's a prodigal and he's not going to church, it may take decades, but just again, the long view, trusting God's providence. From Mother Teresa's point of view, America is one of the poorest countries in the world. When she came to Harvard and gave a commencement address, she read her uh, invitation and said, uh, we invite you, Mother Teresa, as uh, the most well-known person in the poorest countries in the world to share your wisdom with us here in America, the richest country in the world. And that's not true. India is not a poor country. India is a rich country. India has a, a long tradition of many diverse spiritual riches. And America is not a rich country. Any country which slaughters one-third of its own children is a desperately poor country. I mean, where, where, where do riches and poverty really reside? In the body or in the soul? In your attitude or in your bank account? That's a duh. How do we square that with those who are suffering from depression and they know that, and there are certain kind of mitigating circumstances if you just suffered a tremendous loss or you know, you're clinically depressed and, and you know there's something psychologically that's you know, needed correction, but those that just are unable to see gratitude and are unable to climb out of that. We know that with our senses, but how do we practice that in a way that's transformative, performative? One of the reasons, not the only reason, why God allows us to suffer is to move us on so that we're not satisfied with our present state. And people around us that we see, ordinary people in America who aren't happy and who are suffering, even though they have relatively comfortable lives, are being 
tutored. They're being taught. Uh, God is being their guru. You think, what, what, what can you learn from the fact that all this stuff, all this control, all this consumerism isn't making you happy? And what can you learn from the fact that some of these people that you meet that are poor and handicapped are, are happy? For instance, people who, who have Down syndrome children always say, they make me happy because they are happy. You can't argue with happiness. You can argue with, with words. You can't argue with smiles and songs. And, and I see that in my daughter, and I know that those that you kind of know the veil is lifted, that there's no filter, they, they, they forget themselves in the most beautiful way. There's, yeah. there's a lesson there. Yeah, we've grown in grown eyeballs. We're so concerned with our self-image and with ourselves that uh, we, we can't do the first step to joy. The first step to joy is self-forgetfulness. Whenever you have a truly joyful experience and you turn around and think about yourself, oh, look, I'm having a religious experience, it disappears. So just forget yourself. Just look at God, how beautiful he is. Look at his world, his world, not our world. Yes. You conclude the book about judgment, and there are at least 19 uh, different kinds of judgment that you enumerate here. It's an interesting time in our church. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of people who are disillusioned. One of the great things that I, I love about you is you really, you don't avoid that. You, you talk about the church in the span of history back and throughout the world. And for those that have just felt really disillusioned, maybe a, a takeaway in regard to how we should process and look at that. Nothing new. Ecclesiastes was almost right when he said there's nothing new under the sun. The big exception is Jesus. But uh, the problem of suffering, the problem that we, we don't have all the answers, the problem that uh, uh, the problem of death, the problem of poverty, the problem of, of ignorance, the problem of sin, uh, these are not new. And the answers to them are not new either. Uh, what do you do about sin? You repent. What do you do about suffering? You offer it up to Christ in, in, in trust. What do you do about your uh, your problems? Well, you, you believe that uh, these are either due to your stupidity or God's divine providence or a blend of the two, and you work through them. But we don't believe in history, anyone. We don't read the classics. We don't have respect for our ancestors. In most ancient languages, the word piety has two meanings. One, respect for God, and two, respect for the family and ancestors. They all go together. And if you don't learn from, from the past, you're going to repeat it. Errors. Final question. You've lived a long time. You've seen a lot. If you were given the opportunity to address the country in a primetime message that would be covered by all the major news outlets, what is the message that you would share? Well, if I had to say one thing to everybody in the country, realizing that for the first time in American history, more than half of the people in the country no longer have a religious belief. They say they are, they are nuns. I would say, well, either there is a God or there isn't. And if there's a God and he deserves a name, he's got to be all good, and he's got to be all powerful, and he's got to be all loving. And therefore, all things must work together for good under his providence. And if that's not true, and if there's no God at all, then it's hopeless. Because all we have are these few little toys, and it's all going to go down the drain in death. And you can't uh, do anything about it because there's no help. You're, you're sinking and no one will, 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 will save you. So your only chance of happiness is to believe that there is a God. Now, can you prove that there isn't? A kind of Pascal's wager. What do you gain by not believing that there's a God? What do you gain by your attempts to play God and be the highest being in the universe and, and, and it 
inevitably fails. Nothing. And what do you gain if you do believe in God? Everything. Well, that's the world's best bet. Your only chance of, of, of ultimate happiness is to believe, whether you understand it or not, whether you can prove it or not, to believe, to trust that, yes, there is a God, and he loves you, and he designed you, and he is all wise, and he's the one who's writing a script for your life, and your only hope is to, to trust him, like a little child. Look at, if I had to say it in one sentence, I would say, look at a little newborn in his mother's arms, looking up with his eyes at his mother's eyes. What do you see in those eyes? You see total trust, you see total love, and you see the, the confidence that, uh, that mommy knows best. Is that stupid? Is that naive? Does that make the baby unhappy? Just the opposite, make them happy. Well, without losing any sophistication and adulthood and, and, and intelligence, we can still do that higher and higher levels. We can learn from our, from our smallest children. Jesus said that, unless you become like little children, you can't enter my kingdom. Learn from our children. Boy, that is a beautiful thought. Come Holy Spirit, and I just pray that our world will be inflamed with that truth uh, by God's grace and by the, the free will and cooperation of souls that are so yearning, uh, as St. Augustine says, because our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. Thank you so much for your time today. And again, the book is called How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the Cultural Abyss. Dr. Peter Kreeft, it's from Ignatius, by the way. Please support Ignatius. and not only get this title, but maybe one of the 80 <laughs> from Dr. Creep. Thank you so much again. You're welcome. Thank you for ending with my favorite extra biblical quotation, that great line from St. Augustine. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. There's the meaning of life in one sentence. Yes, I will wave that banner with you. Amen. Thank you again to Dr. Peter Kreeft. I have to tell you something. I listened to that particular interview two, maybe three times totally through front to back because of just the nature of pre-recording, the production part of it. And every time I hear it, something else strikes me. So almost like sacred scripture, different things jump out at you. And I'm telling you, the entire book is that way too. So again, that's available. His latest release out now, How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the Cultural Abyss. Next week on the show, I will welcome Dr. Marie Hilliard. She is a senior fellow at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. We're going to cover bioethics and disability, not getting nearly as much coverage and discussion as it should, in my opinion. So I'm really looking forward to exploring this topic. If you have any questions that you would like to submit, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at brooke at thebrooktaylorshow.com. Really, there's only a few more episodes before we wrap up for the season. The kids are going to be home. That means the show is going to be on break officially. I do have a few exceptions. I always try during the summer to at least have one new show a month. It may even be more than that. But I do know in July, I'll be speaking at the Catholic Marketing Network Conference, Momentum 21. It's near Chicago. And that's at the end of July. And actually, in a few weeks... Kathy Gilmore from the CMN will be on the show to talk more about that event. But just to give you a preview, this year, Father Donald Calloway, Father Frank Pavone, Danielle Bean, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, all will be there. 
I will be at the Select International Tours booth, also broadcasting from the venue to bring you some exclusive content. So even though the official season is concluding in a few weeks, I'll still be popping in over the summer with new shows. And also, I really want to try to get Jim, my husband, back on. He joined me about around the new year. It was after Christmas to talk about his big weight loss, losing almost 60 pounds, starting to pray the liturgy of the hours. Well, it's been over a year since he began that process, and I'm happy to say he's kept it up. He's actually preparing to go on a personal retreat now. So I'll see if I can rope him back in. I have some connections. I'm going to see if I can get him back on the show just to talk about some of the techniques that he has implemented in terms of time management, his prayer life, his diet. It's really impressive. So we'll see if we can get that on as well. Until next time, pray your rosary. God bless you. And thank you to my producer, Mark Cumming, for his dynamic skills and quick work. Mark is a producer extraordinaire. So for any audio video needs you may have, check him out at cominghomestudio.com. 